Hi, this is Dr. Jonathan Douglas welcoming you back to OnPsych, the podcast of the Ontario Psychological Association with our special Psychology Month edition uh, with a very impressive guest. <laughs> I'm not intimidated at all by the idea of sitting down and, and interviewing a minister of the Ontario government. No, I've got no anxiety about that. I, I slept fine last night. You know, <laughs> this is going to be fun. I, I, you know, sometimes I sit down with people that I've known very well. Sometimes I sit down with people I've never met before. I don't think I've ever sit down, sat down with someone whose face is in the news as frequently as uh, that of uh, Minister Michael Tobolo, who is the uh, Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Uh, so it's a, a really fantastic uh, that uh, Minister Tobolo uh, would uh, be willing to sit down with us for our podcast today. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. I want, I've got to start with, you know, I, one of the things we want to do, of course, with, you know, psychology is to, to shine a light on the poor, struggling graduate students in psychology. And I, I understand that you are actually one of them. You've got a part-time job to get yourself through school. You know, that's a, a it's a very impressive thing to be able to achieve. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I asked mom and dad to see if they would support me through another degree. And they said, no, so I have to go and get a job and, you know. So I kind of like moonlight as the minister, and uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm doing my my studies to get my doctoral uh, my doctor of psychology actually in uh, addictions and concurrent disorders. So it, it's wow. cool, but you know what? It's I think it's well worth it. It's a great area to study in. It certainly sounds it. Tell me about your path towards this this incredible well, career. You know, I, I, I studied in university uh, political science and economics. Uh, those were the courses that. Uh, really intrigued me as a as a young man, and I I did that. I studied in that area, um, and then I ran. I met a priest uh, while I was. Uh, I eventually became a lawyer and uh, practiced law for about ten fifteen years. When I met a priest who was working with people that uh, suffered from addictions, and he had a unique approach which was um, uh, bed based treatment, and um, I started helping him. By doing some of the um, some classes with him, uh, helping doing some of the motivating uh, the motivational talks with the, the the men in the program, and the more I spent time around there, the more I realized there was a whole area that I really didn't understand, but I certainly appreciated that more work needed to be done, especially uh, given the number of people already that then that, that that were suffering from addictions that couldn't find any help anywhere. And it all started really because uh, part of the work that I was doing, I, I, I was doing my, um, my uh, I was getting my black belt in uh, Taekwondo in the martial art. And I started studying uh, philosophy that is really fundamental to the martial art because martial arts are not about hurting people. They're about learning to live and to use, um, you know, persuasion and and good character as a way of of being uh, identified as a leader and 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 providing supports. And it translates really well when you're trying to help someone that has an addiction that that you know has lost their way, has lost their their, their spirituality. So that coupled with meeting the uh, uh, the priest kind of put me on a trajectory to take over the place that he was uh, running because he was retiring and was tired. And um, that led me to starting start to start have meetings with government officials because I knew that they didn't get it in government and I wanted to influence or try to influence them and persuade them that more work needed to be done in the area of building a continuum of care in the community because that's where the best results come from. So one of the ministers back then said, you know, you're a nice guy, you seem to be very knowledgeable, but everything you talk about is anecdotal. And so as soon as I heard that, I thought, well, you know what? Anecdotal means that we need to do more studies. And of course, there's very little work that's been done in the area of um, bed-based treatment, um, you know, in therapeutic communities. There's, uh, there's some work, but nothing that connects the rates of recidivism, the aftercare supports that, that help um, individuals when they come out of programs, but also what is the length of the right program? Like these are questions that, you know, we've kind of danced around but never really uh, studied. So I decided the best thing to do is to come to government because I can't do anything from the other side and use my experience to hopefully influence uh, policy and direction 
And of course, that's why I am now the minister responsible for mental health and addictions in the province. I kind of worked my way to, to getting it, the first one of the province of Ontario. And um, I continue my studies because, again, I, I believe that, you know, evidence-based uh, strategies are the ones that will win the day. And um, we need to do more. We need more data. We need to understand how to manage a system that really has grown um, as a result of the lack of government uh, uh, work to, to, to establish a connected, accessible system that is oriented towards helping the individual and not just, um, you know, there, one size fits all, good luck if you can get through it. Uh, you've seen and I've seen and any and anyone listening uh, will appreciate the fact that we've got a system, if we could even call it a system that's broken and fragmented. And I'm trying through the work that we've done with the roadmap to wellness, I'm trying to change that and trying to establish parameters, uh, goalposts, uh, and of course, to start to really um, gather data, because if we can't measure it, we can't manage it. And that has been the mantra from day one when I came to this uh, to this ministry, and I'm working really hard to change that. What a fantastic direction, Chris, because for so long, you know, I think, you know, uh, addictions uh, has, you know, sort of really struggled with an absence of, of really solid, you know, policy driven by research. You know, and I think it's fantastic that you're bringing that 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 academic as well as that spiritual connection to it, right? You know, I, I think community is so important, but we should be able to measure these things, and we should be yeah. able to track outcomes and see yeah. what we're doing that works and what doesn't, and for whom. Yeah. So, so for me, um, one of the concerns that I've always had when I when I look at the system is we keep on investing money the same way, and, and I'm not talking about the last three years. I'm talking about the last. 15 years. We keep on investing money the same way. We know that the situation is getting worse, but we keep on investing money the same way. In any other context, that would be insanity, thinking that you're going to get a different result doing things the same way, which is why we had to push the reset button with the roadmap to wellness, look at the lifespan so that we're providing supports and services that are are, are necessary and, and evidence-based for that particular area or the particular time in the person's life. So children under 12, 12 to 24, you know, 24 to 45, all the way to seniors. Then we needed to look at, you know, what do you do in the province like Ontario? I mean, you know, I talk to people and they think Barrie is Northern Ontario. <laughs> I drive to Barrie for wings from, from <laughs> Woodbridge. It is not Northern Ontario. No, it is not. <laughs> it's faster for me to get to Barrie than it is for me to get to Queen's Park. So, yeah. you know, how do you deal with, you know, cities of or towns of three to 500 people uh, that are 500 kilometers from a, a center in Northern Ontario? Yes. So we've had to be innovative, you know, mobile yeah. health units and uh, hub and spoke models to try to, to build those connections. Then for me, the part that's been extremely difficult to understand is why haven't we looked at the different groups that make up our communities? You know, you can't treat everybody the same. You know, the and, and we know this. I mean, psychologists, psychiatrists truly understand the importance of cultural sensitivity to build therapeutic alliances. Governments don't get it, they, or they haven't gotten it in the past, and we've changed that. You know, I'm focused, you know, we've had roundtables with the Francophone, the LGBTQ2 community, uh, you know, communities that support people with neurodevelopmental disorders. Uh, um, we, we've gone through, you know, police officers, frontline workers and first responders. Every one of these groups have different needs and those needs can't be met by a one size fits all. So the focus has been, you know, investments in the Black Health Alliance to utilize, um, you know, safe spaces that they're accustomed to using as a place to give them supports for addiction and treatment. Um, you know, the LGBTQ2 community, again, our youth wellness hubs, those areas, those points in time where there's a great deal of insecurity, anxiety, and potentially other uh, disorders that could arise as a result of not having acceptance or not having the, the 
the the the relationships, the the attachment issues that could possibly the trauma that that that's felt there, and and dealing with that and providing them opportunities. Indigenous communities. I mean, you know, we have a, a an addiction, uh, an opioid overdose crisis. Uh, the average in the province is about sixteen point four, I believe, uh, individuals per hundred thousand. In Northern Ontario, it's forty five or forty six point one. Um, there's a problem in Northern Ontario, and I'm I'm I've been working um, in this in this ministry to look at the continuums of care, to look at what we can do better within the communities, to offload some of the pressures on the hospitals and the emergency rooms, for instance. Um, we don't need to have the hospitals be the the center. You know, someone said it to me yesterday that we've trained the people in the province of Ontario really well. When you see that big H, that's where you run when you got a problem. And the problem with that is that you should only be going there when you have a significant problem, an acute uh, 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 case. Every other case should be handled in the community. You know, eating disorders. What if, where, where are we when it comes to the continuum of care? Uh, addictions. Where are we with the continuum of care? There have been, um, I believe, a lack of fundamental investments um, that to lay the foundation for that continuum of care in communities. And I, we are changing that. You know, we've made substantial investments in um, um, eating disorders, um, in, in addictions. We are have made substantial investments. And there'll be one later today that I'm going to be announcing that, that it's going to change. It's a game changer for uh, the province uh, in terms of um, the treatment continuum for people with uh, addictions and concurrent disorders. Can you give us a hint? After all, this is going out later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what I can say is that um, we finally are acknowledging that harm reduction alone will not make a, a, the difference that and an impactful difference to the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Anyone with an addiction and I have yet to meet one that enjoys being an addict. Yeah. Any person that has an addiction cries out for help. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is laying the foundation that when that person cries out for help, he or she, and when I say he or she, I'm in being inclusive also of women mm-hmm. with children that in the past have not had the opportunity to, to get treatment because of potential issues Absolutely. with children. Yeah. So you will be able to get withdrawal management when and where needed, where you live, as opposed to having to fly or drive for hours and hours to get to a treatment center. Yeah. And then there'll be treatment that will follow uh, the withdrawal management. And then there are going to be wraparound supports uh, that will be enhanced over what we've done to date so that we can help individuals stay on that path, whether it be towards abstinence or whether to, to be to to where, you know, there are some situations that will always require the individual to, to use, but to, to give that person the proper supports. And that includes looking at the social determinants of health. You know, our government's invested over $40 million in housing. Um, not enough, right? But, you know, doing the best we can and, you know, you can't change the course of the of a ship um, you know, in a short period of time, you need that yeah. runway. But our, our pathway forward is to look at the social determinants of health so that when someone gets through the process and he's on the other side or she's on the other side, we're going to help with those other issues and provide those aftercare supports to at least minimize the risk that the person will relapse and have to start the process all over again. It's fantastic. It, 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 you know, it occurs to me too, I mean, you know, one of the changes we've seen, of course, with the pandemic, you know, in our field is, you know, the the massive shift towards digital services, right? You know, being able to do things online, you know, through video and this kind of a thing, which both gives the opportunity to reach out into, you know, more rural underserved areas and also runs us headlong into the difficulty with the, you know, lack of access to technology, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, online works great with a, a middle-class person, you know, living in a well-served city, you know, with access to broadband. And, you know, you're dealing with somebody with a cell phone connection out in a northern community. It's a very, very different matter, isn't it? Yeah. And that and that and that's a, a good point because one of the things that I have to be uh, extremely grateful for uh, with respect to our sector is that 
the the way they were they were able to pivot to be able to provide those online supports. And if I told you that there were over a hundred thousand people that signed up for ICBT, um, uh, you know that that was delivered by the province. I mean that to me is phenomenal. We first responders were over ten thousand now on a program specific to them. Um, it has worked, but you're one hundred percent right. We identified that as an issue in the province as well, and. You know, we're making investments of billions of dollars to improve uh, the system, but that 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 improvement is needed everywhere. I mean, I you know, I'm in, in Vaughan, and ha- and my my computer freezes all the time, and I've got to switch to my cell phone to continue the conversation because, the, you know, the 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 the, bro- the the broadband that we have, the the internet connect connectivity is is bad here as well. So there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done there. But, you know, the one thing that I, I really am uh, grateful for is that um, this sector is not a sector that bases its decisions on anecdotal evidence, which is something that um, I, I'm really happy about because one of the things, one of the pressures that was uh, put on us was to be more analytical um, and use data to make to inform decisions, which is something that all of you appreciate and understand, but in a lot of cases that isn't the the case. And you know, I so when we have when we try to make a decision on on a, on an issue, um, that lack of data becomes really hard. So I you know I'll give you a simple example. I asked a question one time: How many people are we serving in the GTA that are not from the GTA? And you know, crickets. So I said, well. <laughs> Do we know how many people from the remote northern communities are coming into the northern cities and are getting services there? Or if they don't get services, what percentage of the people on the streets in cities like Thunder Bay and North Bay, Sudbury, how many people on the streets are not from those cities? They've come in from other cities looking for support and can't get it. Crickets. Crickets is not the answer. Because, yeah. again, if the underlying issue is that we don't have the supports and services in the cities where these people are coming from, and we know as psychologists and psychiatrists and, and service providers in the sector that your best s- results when you're providing supports and treatment or when you provide them as close as home to where the, orig- the person originates from, every time we continue to make in- investments that are not informed by simple questions like I've, I've posed, what we end up doing is perpetuating the problem by funding the organizations in the hope that somehow this is going to change. And, and, and that's a definition of insanity because it never will change. That's right. right? That's right. Look. And so that's, that's one of the things that, you know, as part of the roadmap to wellness, we're really um, focused on is that center of excellence uh, will 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 provide data to us that will help us make informed decisions to truly bring the services to the individuals as yeah. opposed to having the individuals, you know, looking, scrambling for where they can get help wherever it happens to be in the province. Seems to be one of the values of, of that data-driven approach as well as it, it starts to get away from that, you know, the traditional moralistic you know, approach to dealing with addictions, right? You know, where you're just sort of looking at them as, you know, bad people doing bad things. And if they just would stop, then there would be no problem. And of course, we know that approach simply is not realistic and does not work. Yeah. And never has. Yeah. Well, when I used to do this, I mean, my background, I I did eventually become an addictions, a certified addictions counselor. I've spent a lot of time um, in Indigenous communities. I'm now certified for that, for telemedicine, I, I've gotten a lot of certifications to try to get a better feel for for understanding a lot of the issues, and and it's really concerning that that again the way the the system again I, I, we can call it a system the way what we have been doing uh, has been done has really not given us the outcomes that 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 we should have. Um, every time I, you know, meet someone uh, who's a service provider, and you know, in my role, uh, you know, there's about 400 adult agencies, about 350 for children, approximately, and I've met most of them. And every time I, I start, I start off by asking, "How did this organization come to be?" And the first thing they say is, "Well, I couldn't get help from my kid, or I couldn't get help from my brother, or my my wife committed suicide because of." And I'm thinking to myself, has anyone understood the deep need in 
our communities for these services? And how is it that the grassroots organizations have to fund themselves to provide these supports? I really believe that we've always missed the point. What we try to do is make band-aids. I mean, governments shouldn't be making band-aids. We should be looking at the underlying issues and why the individual is in the situation they're in and then help find solutions for that. And I think that should be the role of government. You know, we and that and now, because we have this incredible hodgepodge of organizations that are doing God's work, they're doing phenomenal work, we've got to figure out a way to pull them together so that we have that continuum of care, so that we recognize where the supports are, where they're perhaps not as strong, you know, bring regulations in place to, to help them, you know, achieve a higher standard of operation and also um, because of the vulnerability of the people that are seeking services, ensure that they're protected and getting, you know, the services they rightfully should be getting and not, you know, sold uh, into a program that perhaps is not um, the right program for them or that, you know, is charging an exorbitant amount of money because, you know, desperation leads us to do desperate things sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, if, if it's not going to be government supported, the funding has to come from somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, unfortunately, that's the reality. And of course, you know, again, looking at, you know, as you were saying, the, um, you know, the social determinants of health. Right. I mean, something like housing is so important in terms of managing, you know, that that chronic addiction. You know, I mean, it's very, what else are you going to do when you're on the street? Right. You know, how are you going to manage that mm-hmm. pain and that, you know, the trauma? Of, of living on the street without numbing out. And, you know, of course, you know, housing is step one. And that's something that only government can solve, right? It's just so, such a big problem. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we, we've gone down that path and we've recognized that, you know, one of the good things about the, this government is that it's allowed us to really look at ourselves from the standpoint of what are we doing um, are we going to continue allowing silos to guide us in terms of how we do things so that there's no connection between, let's say, education and mental health? Or are we going to work together? And, you know, one of the things that uh, our premier has made very clear is that there's only one government and that we are not going to do things in silos, that there has to be coordinated uh, efforts between ministries. And it's common to have a meeting between health, um, uh, MCCSS for children uh, and and, uh, support, community support services, uh, and housing. It's common for us to have those meetings. It's common, we just had uh, last week, um, meetings with health, uh, sorry, with education, Mm -hmm. and talking about the continuum of care for children in these difficult times, you know, the pandemic has created all kinds of problems for kids. Absolutely. That, uh, and e- even before the pandemic, I think yeah. schools were quickly becoming, you know, de facto mental health treatment centers, you know, because the yeah. needs were going up so much and the services simply were not available, you know, uh, to families in their own communities. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, we've identified that as a, as a big issue. We invested $28 million in in-school supports and then shortly after that, $40 million into supports for children and youth. Um, and I've, I've actually received a couple of letters thanking us for the investments because it has made a difference in the wait times. Still not enough. I mean, you know, again, I, I you know, if I'm going to be ever criticized for anything in this ministry or my role is that you didn't spend enough money. But right. we're spending $525 million a year now in annualized yeah. spending. Um, but you know, the, when there's a deficit the size of what we've had, you know, having the province the size of the province of Ontario and really no one having their eye on the ball for, for decades. Um, you know, 2010, a lot of problems were identified. I'm addressing them now in 2021, 22. I mean, it's, it's you know, a lot of time has gone by, a decade, and, and we, no one's really looked at it and that's one of the reasons why i think it was a you know the, when when uh, the premier decided to create a ministry it really created a lane and a pathway that didn't exist before because no one in cabinet would sit down and say hey but how about the mental health implications of what you're doing well hey, here and now every time there's an opportunity for me to you know to, to chime in i chime in because it's important yeah. in making decisions, whether it's public health or housing or education or, you know, whatever happens to be, 
there's a component of mental health that attaches to it. 16 ministries uh, have have uh, crossovers with um, uh, with uh, mental health and addictions. So it's important to have that. And I, you know, I'm I'm very happy to have the role. I, I'm not so sure everyone because they, some do think, oh, here he goes again. But you know what? It's important that you know we have mental health in this system. You know, we had a, a great discussion one day about economic recovery, and you know we're doing really well because we're making investments in cutting red tape and all the great things that our government's doing. And I put up my hands and said, excuse me, but can I just add in one thing? You realize that there will never be an economic recovery if we do not have a mental health and addiction recovery strategy, because without mental health, the people that are working are not working at full capacity or, you know, there's an increased absenteeism. You know, we lose 500,000 days a week to yes. people going to work. You yes, know, the opioid the opioid crisis. People always say to me, "Well, yeah, not 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 always." I'm, I apologize. Some people will say, "Well, you know what? He's homeless. You know, he over he died of an overdose. Oh well." Well, yeah. When you look at the number of people that overdosed last year in the province of Ontario, thirty percent of them were construction workers. Yeah. These are people that live homeless. These are people that have, you know, good cars, live in nice homes, have families. But they've used it as a way to ma manage pain and have become addicted to it as part of, you know, the difficult job that they do. And, and I, I don't take anything away from them, but we have to find better ways to look after their yes. mental health than, 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 you know, looking at prescriptions as a way to maintaining it. So yeah. those are important considerations. And again, you know, I'm, I, I kind of feel like I'm pre preaching to the converted here, but these are the things that we need to let the, pop the general population know about. Because it's important that we integrate mental health in any discussion we have when we talk about the economy or Absolutely. anything else. Uh, you're, you know, I mean, you're so right. I mean, you know, we've known for years that there's a real business case to be made for increasing access to, you know, to mental health services, you know, because it actually pays back to the economy more than it sucks out. You know, because yeah. exactly as you say, you know, we're we're helping people reach their full economic potential. You yeah. know, it's 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 not, you know, compassion versus the economy. It's compassion and the economy. Absolutely. Every single time I look at that issue, you know, the more, you know, the the, the better we do at supporting other people, the better yeah. society does as a whole. You know, Absolutely. the rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's you know, when, when if you shift it the gear and you say, well, okay, that will help reduce. The amount of emergency care, the the, the hallway healthcare issue that we have, because everyone running to the hospitals, if you're providing those supports and recognize that you need to do them in the community, the building of the resiliency and prevention through education and the school systems and investments, so those are great investments. Then, if you flip the, the 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 page and you think, well, how about corrections? So I lived, I was in my first role, the solicitor general for the province back then, minister of community safety and corrections. And I visited, out of the 25 corrections facilities we have in the province, I visited 19 of them. Mm -hmm. And the first question I had for the superintendent, no matter where I went, was how many people in here shouldn't be here because of a mental health or an addic addiction issue? That statistic is consistent throughout the province, 30 to 35%. Yeah. So I scratched my head now and I think to myself, the most expensive bed or, or service that we have in the province are hospitals. The next most expensive is correction facilities. Yeah. So 35% of those people don't belong there, right? And, and they're going to be there a lot longer than they are in a hospital, <laughs> right? So if they're not going to, if, what do we do to correct that? And one of the things we did, I mean, you know, we, we, we started doing CBT within <laughs> our corrections facilities. The question then becomes, well, when that person comes out, Typically, they're repeat offenders because when they get out, they don't have the supports that they need. So we invested in transitional housing to provide those supports. And now I'm waiting for the data to come back and prove to me what I already know and what you already know, that when you do that, you build that continuum of care, they're not going to become repeat offenders or a percentage yes. of them won't. And the yes. ones that don't, we study them and see how we can help the ones that do improve and so now you're starting to build a system that's evidence-based that's supported by data and and again creates the critical thinking behind 
why a policy should be developed by government and investments should be made. Yeah. That's that's what I'm hoping that you know my experiences are going to bring to are bringing to the table, and working with with experts, you know, working with your organization, um, you know, bringing in people that have not just the practical experience, the clinical experience, but the academic uh, knowledge as well. Hey, on psych listeners, Katie here from Jane. I wanted to take a few seconds to say you're doing incredible work. Whether you're a receptionist, office manager, practitioner, or all of the above, we see your commitment to your clients. Jane was built to help you transform that commitment into a thriving business, all while making your day-to-day easier. You can head to jane.app forward slash mental health to read more and see if we can be a good fit for your practice. Absolutely. And I, 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 you know, I'm aware, you know, that in the past, you know, you know, a decade or 15 years ago, you know, um, OPA was viewed as essentially by the government as a kind of a lobby group. Right. You know, a yet another group coming to the government with its hands out, you know, looking for, you know, support for, you know, our profession. Um, which is fine. And I, you know, I, <laughs> by all means, that's, that's part of the role of OPA is to support the profession. But what we've really learned is the way to interact with government isn't to come with an ask, it's to come with a solution, right? It's to, you know, let's sit down and let's talk about, you know, these solutions. And we're not just here for psychology, we're here for the people of Ontario, right? We're trying to, yeah. you know, find ways to help government, you know, solve problems for the people of Ontario, for sure. Yeah. And I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Like I have all the time in the world to, to, uh, you know, to speak and to listen. I ask for suggestions. You know, I'm constantly concerned. I, I mean, I do a lot of research myself because of the, the, the my doctoral work. And so I, I do a lot of, of, of background in terms of, you know, how was this problem looked resolved in, in, you know, in Portugal, for instance, when it comes to addictions and what they're building up in terms of treatment capacity. Um, I speak, but I, you know, the greatest knowledge comes from the people closest to um, the people that are coming for services. I mean, identifying when, when we started hearing about eating disorders, for instance, you know, I studied it as part of my 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 prep work for my doctorate. I had never met anybody with an eating disorder, and then someone came to me and said, "Do you have any idea what's happening in the uh, in in this area?" And then I, I was speaking to a psychiatrist, trying to understand why are we seeing such a an increase in the prevalence of of uh, eating disorders. And he explained it to me that it's tied to the fact that we've got kids and screens uh, in classrooms looking at themselves for extended hours, and it's contributing. To that 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 sense of of um, you know not liking what they see and the only thing they can control is their intake of food and it's exacerbated the eating disorders which you know again a lot of doctors aren't trained to recognize a lot of parents don't see that their their child is not eating or that uh, if they eat they're you know they're they're expelling whatever they ate and so th- it goes hidden. And and you know it's 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 fatal if it if it goes uh, long enough, um, and it's very complicated to help uh, someone. So you know we as soon as we recognized that that was there and it was brought to our attention, we pivoted very quickly. We made huge investments, unprecedented investments in eating disorders, and are now working not only to create that continuum of care with community supports. Um, so that we don't get more acute cases or all cases going to the H, um, and and making and trying to make a difference in 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 supporting people earlier on. Again, looking at the underlying causes, looking at what we can do to help parents and teachers and 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 doctors better understand the diagnosis, the illness, so that that it can be treated preventatively or, or treated early on so that we don't get to the more acute cases where they have to be hospitalized. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, one of the things that it puts me in mind of is, you know, I think one of the frustrations we've had in psychology, you know, back in the, oh, would have been the 1990s, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. I remember I was an intern at the time, right, when uh, government, you know, uh, really started to cut back. And we really lost psychology, you know, as a profession that was part of the public system, 
right? You know, we so many hospitals, particularly in the Toronto area, divested themselves of their psychologists, right? And we all ended up, you know, as a result of that, you know, going into private practice where, you know, you know, we're we're drawing on those, you know, the extended health benefits. We're we're helping you were helping those who have the means, in other words, you know, to be helped. And I it feels like psychology is as a result being significantly underused, you know, in the system. You know? It's a, that's that's a, a fair and interesting comment. That was one of the reasons why we looked at the structured psychotherapy model that was being used by Alpad out in, in, in London, in England, um, and studied that system to see its adaptability to the province of Ontario. And, and we are um, very much behind it from the standpoint of ensuring that the supports and services are there, that they're available through OHIP. So they're, they're technically, uh, they're not really free of charge because they are being paid by the taxpayers of the province. But sure. <laughs> someone can access help now that may not otherwise have been able to do it if they had to pay for it themselves. And I think that program, again, the way it's being set up is to ensure that there is a a way that we can measure the outcomes so that if it's working, which we suspect will work because the the utilization and the success rate somewhere around 60 to 70%. To me, uh, that, that, that you know, some people might come back and say, "Well, it's only sixty to seventy percent." You know, how can you justify? It? Personally, I think we need to look at other um, therapies. That when you have someone that's resistant to, to perhaps uh, CBT, that we use other systems. And you absolutely, know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not going to be one size fits all. Nothing ever is in yeah, mental health. Yes, yes, right? and that's that's our that should be our theory. Our, our philosophy is let's yeah. look at different. You know, I've been I've been studying. Um, you know, intensive, short-term, dynamic uh, psychotherapy. I've been I've been looking at it as a as a model that perhaps could be utilized in the more acute cases where an individual, um, you know, it, it, CBT wouldn't work for that individual. I'm concerned, and and this is something I think that um, I need help from you and, and the people listening to the to this program. Um, my concern is that, and you'll all understand this, um, we start off with something that we're all familiar with, let's say CBT. When CBT doesn't work, we move to the next therapy that we think might help that individual. And we keep on going down the chain until we find one that does work. I think we need to find a mechanism. And this is something that I've been talking about within the ministry as well. We need to find a mechanism that better assesses and diagnoses individuals and then links them to the the, the treatment that's going to have the best effect. Um, When I started with um, intensive uh, dynamic psychotherapy, when I started looking at it, um, I I, I took some courses with Dr. Abbas in uh, Nova Scotia. And he said to me that they usually don't come to him until they're ready to do some kind of uh, invasive um, um, uh, brain stimulation like that. They come to him just before that, just to see yes. maybe there's an opportunity to help that individual. And I, I, I don't understand why do we not have a better mechanism in place that allows an assessment and a, and a diagnosis? Should it be a team a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a a composition of different disciplines to come in and say, you know what, based on what this individual needs, this is the treatment that should have the best outcome for that individual and not have them shopping around and spending years trying to find a solution. Because every day that goes by, these the, the, typically the symptoms get aggravated so i, I still i've got you covered i've got you covered i know exactly what we need to do here what we need is you know first of all a proper system where it's there there's a triage to the right level of care right and the right mode of care and what we have right now is you know the triage is basically what's in your wallet you know, if you, you have you got an extended health benefits card, good, we can get you the care. No, not there. How much money do you have in the bank? Not so much. Sorry, try to look at ODSP, right? Because yeah. you know, we'll just put you there and park you there and not offer you actual the services that you need to get off of it, right? So, you know, what we need is exactly as you're saying, a really good comprehensive assessment. And it needs this is the key, I think. Okay, this is the piece which is really missing, you know, even within the field as it currently exists, right? 
we could, you know, I, I think of like, for example, um, WSIB frequently, you know, they, 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 they allow one assessment, you know, at the beginning for treatment planning purposes for the practitioner in the environment, right, in the community. And then, you know, when that person fails to get better rapidly enough, right, uh, then they send that person to CAMH or, you know, some other third-party assessor where they will be assessed by a psychiatrist and a psychologist, you know, so they get a pretty comprehensive two-day assessment, right, which looks at, you know, uh, you know what's really going on with this person, right, uh, from a diagnostic perspective, right? which is great, but it's often missing one essential piece. And I think the essential piece is this, what is that client's theory of change? Because that is often, I think, the piece of, of assessment which is missing. It's not just what's wrong with you and what, what technology have we got to throw at that, you know, whether it's a psychotherapeutic technique or medication or what have you. It's what intervention is going to best fit with your expectations, your personality, you know, and what you believe is most likely to help. Now, of course, most people aren't going to come in with a really well-articulated sense of that, right? But when you can, you know, listen carefully to that person and develop that relationship, you know, uh, with that person and tease that piece out, I think that's the piece that I find is so valuable in my work, right? It's, it's, you know, when I can, you know, I've got this cornucopia of stuff right at the beginning of therapy and, you know, four or five, six sessions in, it is narrowed down to what I now believe is going to be most helpful with this given individual. And that might be CBT, right? It might be much more, you know, of a dynamic approach, right? You know, it might be, you know, almost anything really, right? I might be, you know, doing, using devices and this kind of a thing, you know, you know, it, it, so it, there's a lot of different things that we can do, right? Mm -hmm. And I, well, I think that's the key. So my challenge to you is to assemble a team of people for us to have a round table to discuss what is the best approach, because I would do nothing I would like better to include in our discussion, the center of excellence, um, and, and perhaps some of the, uh, KMH people and, you know, people like Dr. Kurdiak that, that, uh, uh, you know, looks at measuring and, and trying to get the, 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 you know, to understand what the results are of anything we do. I would love to have a round table to discuss that and yes. maybe come up with a policy, uh, or, or, or a concept that we can then implement that's a pilot to see yeah. how that works. Cause I, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, an example in the addiction world because that's the, where I come from. We have individuals coming into um, withdrawal management. They're there a week. Typically, a person coming in has an underlying um, um, an underlying mental health issue. It could be anything: anxiety, it could be a psychosis, it could be schizophrenia, bipolarism. I, I mean, I've seen them all. The, the the person comes in and he's on prescription medication from his psychiatrist that are part of a cocktail of street drugs that the individual has been taking. Right. When you put him into a detox and he's there with you for five to seven days, is mm -hmm. typically be a medical detox person comes out of the detox and goes into a treatment modality. When he gets into treatment, you start treating the individual, but the person, the half-life of the medications in his system and the fact that you don't have an accurate diagnosis because yes. again, in many cases, the person doesn't come with a diagnosis, nor do you have access to his medical records. But if you do, and you know, and you're dealing with those half lives, uh, you know, the half life of the medications that are in a system, and you're trying to wean him or bring him down to the right amount of medication. First problem is, if the person comes into a program for 90 days, it takes six months to get a, an appointment with a psychiatrist yes. who is who who was medicating the individual or who will now have to taper or adjust because the person is being weeded off weaned off the street drugs. Mm -hmm. The second thing is is that when you're providing treatment, the person still has uh, medication in his system. So by the time he finishes the process, right, the the treatment modality. The individual goes out and you've never gotten a proper diagnosis. You've never had. Now the guy relapses. Yes. And he starts the system again. He goes back into withdrawal management. 
the process starts all over again because there's no continuum that allows the 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 individual doesn't have access to the records of the individual coming in. You see how we're perpetuating this theory? Absolutely. How we're going to change the world, and all we're really doing is insane because yeah. it never will fix itself. So one of the, that's, another, yeah. that's another issue for me. How do we fix that? Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned like these people coming in on psychiatric medications, which of course does not translate into they're under the care of a psychiatrist. 80% yeah. of these medications are being prescribed by family doctors, right? True, people who exactly. don't necessarily have a great deal of, they may have, right, in some cases, but, you know, they often do not have a great deal of training in mental health. Now, one of the things, of course, that you know, OPA, you know, has floated. And it's been floated in many jurisdictions in um, in North America, uh, you know, over the past number of years, uh, is the idea of expanding the scope of practice, you know, with uh, for psychology, you know, um, you know, and, and we, we put forward a case to the government. Oh, God, it must have been like 2015 or something like that. I think OPA, you know, submitted a really nicely um detailed you know, got compliments on what a great job we did arguing for you know uh you know the expansion of scope of practice which would include you know like a post-doctoral master's degree so in other words you'd, you'd you'd get your doctorate and then you'd go to get an additional master's degree you know uh in in learning you know psychiatric medication learning prescription yeah. learning yeah. you know biology yeah. and work with physicians obviously yeah. you know not, yeah. not that different from like a nurse practitioner or something like exactly. this where you're going to have a relationship right mm-hmm. and of course it, it's 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 still sitting in the government <laughs> we never got any feedback never... it was like oh this is a great job we'll get back to you and that's yeah. it's been sitting there somewhere i imagine it's like you know, I, I I picture like the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, uh, warehouse, you know, where we've got this this paper sitting. What you have any idea what's happening? And you're 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 going to school in California, right? Yeah. Where you know some of these schools exist for yeah. you know yeah. you know these. I, look, I, I am a supporter. I I, I have I, I've had some debates about this because there are people that do not support it. Yeah. But having been, you know, I come from the grassroots. I come from the. Mm-hmm. The, the practicing side. So I've seen the, 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 you know, the problem of, you know, the frustration of trying to help someone and not being able to get it to a psychiatrist. And again, I don't want to demean or, or take away from what psychiatrists do. They're just no, not at all. But yeah. I think that when you're trained in psychology and, and having received that training now as well, I don't see why there shouldn't be the ability for someone to train up for, especially uh, when it comes to working in areas like uh, addictions, but across the board, when it comes to any mental health issue, I I would welcome that. And I, to be honest with you, I've never seen this study. I didn't even know it existed, but I would love to, if you could send me a copy of it, I'd love to read it. I don't think I have enough time in this mandate to, to, uh, to tackle that one, but I would love to tackle one the next time around because yeah. again, I, you know, as I highlighted, the problem uh, is that that length of time that an individual, we're trying to help him, but we're trying to help him while he still is suffering. And we don't know what exactly he's suffering from. It's kind of like, you know, we're pouring water in the top, there's leaks everywhere, but we can't fix the leaks because we don't know how to fix them. So we just keep on hoping we can throw more water at it to keep the, the, the amount of liquid in the, in the container, you know, where we want it to be. We have Absolutely. to start focusing more on 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 being able to pivot quickly to provide those supports to the individual. I think the the the, the outcomes would be incredibly successful. I I know that the service providers. I mean, I'd love to talk about that with service provider. I think they would be ecstatic to be able to hire on someone that has the ability because psychologists, thankfully, you know, you're, they're still hard to get to because they're they're inundated. There's they're, too few of us. There's yeah, but I, I, you know, but the, the, again, if we had that ability, that would make uh, psychologists even more valuable in the mm-hmm. continuum of care. And I'm all about the continuum of care and delivering services where and when they're needed. You know, can you imagine somebody in the north? I remember we did when I first came to this ministry. I think there were two psychologists, psychiatrists, sorry, in all of northern Ontario. And one was about right. to retire. So I'm thinking, like, you know, the north is is north of Barrie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is an it is a country. You know, That's it's, right. It's France. It's Germany. Like it, it's the size of a country, and we got two psychiatrists, right? Yeah, yeah. How do we help these poor people? 
So yeah. I think we need to be adaptive. We need to look at those as opportunities. I mean, there are a lot of people that are not going to go to school for another two years or three years to become certified in pharmacology. But for the yes. ones that do want to do it, and we should be encouraging some to do it, that might be the direction we, we need to go while we ramp up, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the number of psychiatrists and, and more psychologists in the system. Yes, it's, it's definitely not about replacing psychiatry by any stretch of the no. imagination. It's augmenting, right? And the yeah. other value, you know, that I, I think is, is worth pointing out, you know, I think, you know, within the field, there's some concern that medication could, you know, in a sense, uh, take away from, you know, the... Um, the psychological approach that we have, which of course is our, our great strength, but the ability to prescribe is also the ability to unprescribe. You know, we can't, when someone comes in and they're on multiple medications or they're on long-term benzodiazepines or something like this, and I go, that is not a good idea, right? Yeah. I don't have the power to say, stop taking that. I can't. <laughs> That's clearly inappropriate for me. Without that ability to prescribe, I can't say we need to do something different. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an important point as well, you know, because sometimes, you know, when when the only tool you've got is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Right. And we frequently see in psychiatric uh, prescribing, you know, uh, is, you know, that drug didn't work. Let's add another, (laughs) you know, or Mm -hmm. let's increase the dose. Let's do more of what didn't work. And, you know, we we see this quite a bit. And I think sometimes that leads to quite, you know, significant problems, not always, obviously, you know, but it, it, it is a very complex thing. And, you know, I, I would like to be able to, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. to be able to say, no, not a great idea. Yeah. Well, you know, and when I started studying in this area, one of the first things they taught me was you always turn to therapies before you think about uh, mm-hmm. any kind of uh, medication. Mm-hmm. And the medications, I mean, you do need them to stabilize. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, you know, we've had situations where uh, the, the, the organization, the, the program I used to run is an abstinence program. Mm-hmm. And But abstinence doesn't mean, um, you know, taking someone's diabetic pills or, or, you know, pills for the person's heart, or for that matter, per- pills to stabilize that individual when they're dealing with complex cases of, you know, with schizophrenia, bipolarism, uh, psychoses. I mean, there are situations where you need to have medication in place, but the, the problem becomes, especially in the addiction world, treatment programs typically are 45, 90 days. And that yeah. typically is not enough time to get a proper diagnosis when the person has dried out of whatever those particular right. medications are. So you're continuing at least with the, you know, the protocols that you have from his previous psychiatrist, if he had mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And as he's drawing off of, of uh, or withdrawing from, from the street drugs, what starts to happen is those drugs start to change and influence individually differently. Exactly. So yeah. All those moods and behaviors need to be looked at and the amount of medication reassessed. Well, how do you reassess it if it takes six months to get to a psychiatrist and the guy's going to be out of your program in 45 days. Exactly. So frustrating. Yeah. And, and, um, but it, so that's another issue that really needs to be addressed. I mean, from my, mm-hmm. from my standpoint, if we're going to give people access, mm-hmm. the access has to be to appropriate services and the, the appropriateness of the services is going to be determined by getting a proper assessment and diagnosis done. Yeah. So whether yeah. it's the children, you know, in the school systems that are looking for the supports, um, you know, in the community, whether it's a person who has an addiction, whether it's a person with a mental health issue that we need to diagnose. So we, we re- I think we really need to work on that piece so that when the person is put into whichever stream is determined to be the most appropriate, that is the way we need to do it. Um, and, and we need to understand it. And it has to come from your, um, you know, from your membership. It has to come from the psychiatrists in the world, because yeah. I think, you know, that will inform government of what the policy should look look like going forward. Yeah, yeah. I, I know we're, we're, we're running out of time. There's one thing I wanted to raise. You are uh, working on a PTSD wellness center. Can you tell us about that? Sure, that I can talk about. One of the things that when I was the minister uh, for uh, the Solicitor General, um, what, what one thing I found is I started asking questions. I, I, and let me let me backtrack. The, within the first week of me being the Solicitor General, the OPP had a um, had a suicide. 
And I happened to be going to AMO um, in um, uh, Ottawa. And uh, while I was driving there, uh, I decided to go to Williamsburg and, and you know, uh, visit uh, with the family. There was a wake that, that day. So I got there and I saw this, the pictures of this incredibly healthy looking guy yeah. um, who had nothing but, you know, his life ahead of him. And, and um, I talked to his 19-year-old daughter who was just, I think she was just about to go to university. And rather than, you know, her father taking her to university, she was taking him to be buried. It was just like tragic. Yes. Anyways, within two days, I was on the phone with Commissioner Hawk while I was up there. Another OPP officer committed suicide. So that immediately got me thinking, what exactly do we do to train our first responders and so I asked for the curriculums and I found that they were very deficient in terms of preparing them for the work and then I found out that there's very little in the way of supports internally so I commissioned a report that report brought out all kinds of recommendations which we implemented so now we have embedded psychiatrists psychologists I mean you know you name it we've got them in the police uh, the police services to help them decompress because of the things they see every day absolutely yeah I, you know so through that process i started started thinking to myself we need to do something more so i went to the premier and i said look what do you think about you know doing something and getting a center built and doing so he said yeah go ahead you know make make it happen he said you know and again he's a huge supporter so me in my way i just started making phone calls and talking to different people and i talked to the regional chair up in in, in peel and he said, ah, you know what, I think I could find you a piece of land. And then I went out to, uh, because again, I didn't want this to look like a psychiatric, and you all know that that you cannot treat a first responder or frontline worker in the same location where you're treating other individuals. They need to have specialized, they need to have um, separate facilities for them because of the interactions. I don't know how many times I've heard stories of a police officer who arrested somebody sitting next to him in a in a in a treatment center yeah you have that it doesn't work and, and or, or or you're looking at like you know ptsd arising from you know childhood sexual abuse right which is very yeah. different from ptsd arising from you know police work Trauma, you know, yeah. it's it's really not the same yeah so that anyways what ended up happening was i went out to runnymede because i wanted this to be a wellness i didn't want it to come across that we're building another psychiatric hospital because we're not this is a wellness center it's a training yeah. center it's a way of building resiliency anyways to make a long story short her husband at the time i didn't know was a retired firefighter wow. so she has uh, an interest in this area as well so that got us talking and if you've ever met the uh CEO at Running Me, she's a dynamite. Um, she went out and she got the support of the federal government for the capital because, again, I don't have yep. money for capital, but I do for programming. Yeah. And uh, one day I get a phone call from the premier. He says, What's this? I hear that we're very close to building a center for PTSD for persons. Premier, you told me two years ago to start the project and, you know, it's coming to fruition. So he was astounded. And, um, <laughs> We announced it, and we're going to be doing a, a more formal announcement and a groundbreaking by the spring. Oh, fantastic! So we have a center. Uh, it's not the first in in Canada. It's the first one in Ontario. There is a, a La Vigile for firefighters in Quebec, and there is sorry for fi uh, for police officers, and mm -hmm. there is one for firefighters in the United States. So we are going to basically take the best of the best create this center that's going to not only provide supports and services to um, all our first responders and frontline workers, but also educate and help promote mental wellness uh, amongst the people that are looking after us. So that that's one of the, I guess, if I have any legacy when I leave government, um, it's going to be that I was part of the team of people that came together to yes. turn that dream into a reality. And I, I'll tell you, he's retired now, but uh, Police Chief uh, Eric Jolliffe from York Region, um, I went up there and his deputy at the time was uh, Commissioner Carrick, but he was the deputy at York Region. And I was telling him about this vision and this dream. And um, the OPP uh, uh, commissioner said to me one day, when you came and told us about this, we, you know, we love the idea, but we realized that it was because of your naiveness that you would be thinking such grandeur because <laughs> it ain't going to happen. It just, it's not going to happen. 
And so they were kind of like, so when I when we actually did the announcement, of course, uh, uh, Chief Jolliffe retired, uh, but Tom Carrick, the commissioner, was at the announcement. And he was yes. looking at me, and I could, he was looking at me, and afterwards he said, we never thought you were going to pull this off. But you know what? <laughs> when you have a premier who loves and is very passionate about our first responders, yes. and you have people that are engaged and are interested, and at yes. all levels, federal, you know, they they jumped on it because they see this as something that, you know, we need it for for also all, all our, our, our veterans. We that's right. For, for This is something that's desperately needed here. So I'm, I'm really be proud to be part of that team that put it together. And I, you know, hats off to the premier for trusting me to go forward and, and, and absolutely. bring this uh, and bring well, congratulations! That, that is that's a terrific, terrific achievement. You know, I'm I'm involved with uh, Badge of Life Canada as well. A lot of the work oh, that yeah, I of do, course. they're part of it, the team. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, uh, uh, so it's it's such an area of passion of mine, and I couldn't agree more. You know, training is the model, right? You know, it's not just about recovery after the fact. It's we got to you know start figuring out how do we you know give these skills to people. You know. Uh, earlier in the career right so that they can you know continue in the career with with less disability arising yeah and 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 we also have to remember it's not just about the the first responder or the doctor the the physician or the nurse whoever it happens to be that needs the help what about the implications to the family absolutely i mean i think about i still see that 19 year old old girl standing in front of me and i've got to tell you this what she said to me when i asked her so what do you decide what have you decided to study she said psychology and i said and i you know my heart sank when she said yeah. that because here is a girl who has probably suffered her entire life yeah. watching her dad suffering yeah. because of you know the underlying issues that the poor man had to deal with being a police officer and all the trauma and moral injury and ptsd everything that accumulates in him and so here's this girl now looking to dedicate her life to help other people. But I, I believe she's also doing it because she wants to understand what went wrong with her father. Um, It's just heartbreaking to me to, to, you know, uh, to, to, you know, when I, when I go through the process of thinking about this, this is why we have to make change. This is why we have to invest. Um, You know, we don't know how many lives we're going to save, but we do know the ones we lose because of inaction. And we have to stop the inaction and we have to make sure that we're helping people and, and helping them achieve the greatest, you know, the greatest life that they can have. Because at the end of the day, when they're on guard, giving us the security to be able to live our lives the way we do, they, we have a duty. We owe them a duty yeah. to invest in things that are going to keep them safe and, 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 and also sharing and their families sharing the lives of their, their their parents who would otherwise you know have a, a psychological breakdown or, or, or a mental health issue that that if untreated could lead to disaster in the family so i'm all in when it comes to these types of investments and making a difference in people's lives they're they're, they're critical for the absolutely for the absolutely yeah and that that formula you know of of you know converting suffering into meaning right i think is is the definition of post-traumatic growth, right? And I yeah. think that's 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 what it's really all about. And that's a fantastic place to end our our psychology month, you know, uh, podcast. I want to thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to join us. I know you've got a busy day ahead, and uh, it's it's really been a great pleasure. And, and you know, just and and good luck in your studies, Minister. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Right, I, I'm care. honored to be joining your ranks uh, uh, one day. As, uh, as a, not that I'm going to practice, but I, I truly appreciate and respect the great work that psychologists do and, and the amount of study that goes into what you all do to, to, to be able to help people. So God bless you all. Thank you for the amazing work that you've done through the pandemic. Stay strong. Keep good ideas coming towards us, especially while I'm here. I, Absolutely. I'm an advocate for all of you. So. I, I think we can count on OPA having you on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey there, this is Katie from Jane. Thanks for letting our team be a part of your listening experience over these past few months. We're proud to be sponsors of the Ontario Psychological Association and the OnSite podcast. If you're new to Jane, let me tell you a bit about us. 
Jane is complete practice management software that can help you navigate your day-to-day with ease and flexibility. This means simple scheduling, streamlined billing, intuitive charting, and so much more. We'd love to meet you and hear your story. Our team is only a phone call or email away, and you can find us over at jane.app forward slash mental health. We look forward to hearing from you. You have been listening to On Psych, presented by the Ontario Psychological Association. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm-hmm.